Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? It means that the way into the kingdom of heaven, in other words, the door into the kingdom of heaven, the ability to go into the kingdom of heaven, it's real close. It's right here. This is your opportunity. This is why the Lord said to to Israel, if you only knew, but you didn't know. No. If you only knew the time of your visitation. But you lost it all because you didn't know the opportunity was there. Have you ever thought about that when you talk to someone, when you talk to a lost person about the Lord, how, what an opportunity that is, and how tragic it is if that person just, just blows it off, doesn't even take any time to consider. That's God's visitation. That's God's time of visitation. Remember this acutely, I wasn't here last week, as you know, because uh, of two funerals. And... Um, it kind of broke my heart. One was of Shinji, the, my Japanese friend, up in Los Angeles, and Shinji had cancer, and I, 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 I poured out my heart to him on several occasions, and uh, even uh, gave him Bible and food and, and typed up one page of um, Bible verses, critical Bible verses that he needed in order to respond to God to go to heaven, and I gave it to him, and I said, now, look, Shinji, uh, keep this in the pocket uh, of your hospital gown. Uh, when you go to, if you, because you got out of the hospital, so go, when you go to Japan, keep this with you. And so uh, I was kind of touched because the family invited me to, to uh, come after the funeral to a gathering at their house, which I was able to talk to his wife and kids. And I said, you know, I typed up this paper for Shinji. They said, oh, yes, it's over there next to his bedstand. He kept it with them all the time. So I hope that he did respond. But it was a time, and, and, and I remember Shinji told me, he says, you know, uh, I don't have anybody talking to me the way you do uh, in, in my life except for you. That was an opportunity. That was a time of visitation. I hope you responded to the Lord. And then the other funeral which I went to was Dorothy, and she was a Holocaust survivor. And we, we used to have uh, tremendous fights, actually, because... Um, we were reading the Bible together in Hebrew, and she just could not resist telling, asking me if I knew what it meant. And even though I told her to know what it meant, she just says, no, it doesn't matter. You don't know. And so she would just explain to me what Rashi said, one of the Jewish commentators that was just totally off the wall, just all made up anyway. And so we had these big fights. But Dorothy and I had many, many conversations almost weekly that we would, for hours, and, and, uh, and I would encourage her to come to the Lord, to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, and she would just say, look, 
you and I go to different congregations, you know, which is you know, it's very common among Jewish people to say, you're not a Jew because you're Reformed, you're not a Jew because yeah, this and that and the other. Anyway, but uh, uh, she died, and, and, uh, and at the end of the, uh, of the funeral, the end of the funeral, which is, uh, which is Jewish funerals are very disturbing because you, you take the shovel full of dirt, each person does, and puts it on the grave, which is a little disturbing. But anyway, then we met over at the, at the, uh, at the synagogue, and, uh, and that was a time when people could get up and could, um, could give their, their own, uh, what they wanted to say about uh, Dorothy. And there was one fellow who, I, 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 he had a white yarmulke on and so forth, and he stood up and he said, my name is Sergio. And he, he explained that he had, was meeting with, with uh, Dorothy to uh, read the Bible together so he could understand more of what the Bible says. The minute a person says that, you know that, okay, he's not Jewish. He wants to know what the Bible says, you know. But, um, but anyway, so uh, I thought, oh, Sergio. I said, he was the other one in Dorothy's life who, who, um, who, who was also encouraging her to go to his Messianic synagogue and, and, and to receive the Lord, and, and so um, afterward, you know, after he spoke, I says, you know, I, I turned to him, I says, Sergio, I'm Tom Cantor. And he says, you're Cantor who? <laughs> he thought I was a Cantor. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I was born one. But, um, uh, but, you know, he says, oh, Tom Cantor. He says, oh, yeah, she talked a lot about you. And I said, well, she talked to me a lot about you. And so Sergio told me that, uh, you know, three months before she died, that um, I didn't know this, but three months before she died, Sergio was talking to her about the peace that God gives. And she asked him, how do I get that peace? And so he explained to her the gospel very carefully, said, you know, you have to receive Yeshua. And so he didn't ask her, you know, are you willing to do that or anything like that? He just explained it to her. And a week later, they met together, and Sergio told me that he asked her, he said, did you do that? Did you do that prayer? And she said, yes, I did. So there's a great assurance about that. And then as I was meeting later on with the family, I said, do you know what Dorothy did? And I explained to them, no, it's your turn, you know. (laughs) But uh, pray for them, pray for them. It's an opportunity. We don't know. I didn't know Dorothy was going to die. She was 88. I thought, she's so strong, she's going to live, I don't know, a long, long time, you know, through the Holocaust. But uh, anyway, time came. But then you look back on it at that funeral, and as I look back, I thought to myself, I'm so glad that in the times that I was, in the, in the interim times when we weren't fighting with each other, that I brought her the gospel. And uh, so praise the Lord for that. So here's John. He's out there in the wilderness. This is their time. This is their time of visitation. This is their time of opportunity. And if you would have, and John knew it, and so if you would have said to John, John, why are you so worked up? I mean, you know, I might say, John, why are you so, I mean, you're out here in the wilderness with the camel's hair for the clothing and the eating the locusts, the honey, and the crying and the baptizing. And, you know, you could have a comfortable life in Jerusalem. What's driving you, John? What is it that's driving you to do all this? And you know, John, you can imagine that John would have maybe perhaps said, you know, there, it's the last two verses in the Bible. Of course, that would be the Old Testament. The last two verses in the Bible, because there was no New Testament at that time. The last two verses in the Bible, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses. And, and the last two verses that started the 400-year silence before John broke that silence was this. Behold, John 4, I mean, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the, the earth with a curse. So, I mean, I can imagine John is saying, it's those words, what's driving me? It's those words that God announced to Israel. I will send you the prophet uh, Elijah. And, and John would have said, I'm that prophet. And I was sent. That's the issue. John filled with this sense that he was sent, that he was sent, which is all important. No preacher can preach the word unless he feels and knows that he is sent. That's what it says in Romans 10.5. Romans 10.5. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So he's sent, and this drives him, and his message is repent. And so when he says to the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it shows to us that John has this special or certain relationship to the people. He has a relationship to the Lord. He says, I'm not able to untie his shoe latchets. He's preferred before me. That's his relationship to the Lord. Now he has a relationship to the people. And his relationship to the people is faithful. He's a faithful messenger. And the people are saying, oh, John, 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 John. And then he's responding and he's saying, no, no, no. In John 3.30, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. So he knew that he was on the, on the high level as far as Israel was going. He knew that the Lord Jesus was, let's just say, unknown, unknown. And he said, my life work is to bring myself down and to bring the Lord Jesus up. He, he must increase, I must decrease. And that was a, that, that's a great statement. And, and it's a statement for us as well to follow in life. He must increase, I must decrease. And so we can see here the, that his relationship to the Lord and how he was faithful in telling the people, repent. In other words, you're going the wrong way. Reminds me of the, the, the man I met yesterday who told me that in his effort to get close to God, that he had this period of his life when he was trying to get close to God, and he prayed the rosary every day. So he told me. And I told him, it is, it was wrong for you to pray the rosary. I told him that. Because you, you should not be praying to Mary or exalting Mary, but you should be exalting the Lord Jesus. He didn't appreciate that. But anyway, John had a great calling to the people of Israel when he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He's saying that, he, he's saying that look, the Lord Jesus is not known. He's unknown in Israel. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. And actually, there came a time when he was very open, very transparent with his heart to Israel. And he said in John 1.33, John 1.33, I knew him not. He's just very honest. He said, I didn't know who he was. I knew him not. He says, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, unto whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So he's saying, I knew him not. When he's saying that, he's saying, I didn't know him. But really, he's saying to Israel, you don't know him either. You don't know him as well. So the Lord Jesus was unknown. He was hidden. 
in that day, so to speak. And that's the way he is today. That's the way he is today. But as John says, but God showed me who he was. And for each one of us, there was a time in our lives when we didn't know who the Lord Jesus really was. So we're like John the Baptist. I didn't know. I didn't know him not. But then as the Lord showed John the Baptist by this miracle of the dove and so forth, then he knew who he was. And then as it came about in our lives, as, as God revealed to us who the Lord Jesus was, and then he became known to us. And then John the Baptist's job in, in his life work was to make him known, to make him known. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Now, here's Israel. They're all flowing out to John. They're all coming in, in verse uh, 6. They were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sin. Now, Jordan, of course, we know. We think of the River Jordan now. And I know there's a place where you, you, know, you go and you get baptized and so forth like that. It's a big famous thing for us. But... At that time, the River, River Jordan had two associations with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people there. The first association that the River Jordan had was that it was made famous, so to speak, because of a Syrian captain named Naaman. And so it says in 2 Kings 5, 1, 2 Kings 5, 1, Naaman captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. He was a leper. It's pretty shocking. And so then in verse 10, uh, he goes to Israel to, 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 to be healed of his leprosy. And Elijah the prophet, he comes to Elijah the prophet, and Elijah the prophet says in verse 10, 2 Kings 5.10, Elijah sent a message unto him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Thou shalt be clean. That's what he says. And so that meant, and that was true, that at that time, a person who was a leper wasn't just, oh, you have a terrible disease. No, you, have, you are unclean. And, and this is what it says in Leviticus 13.45. Leviticus 13.45. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and he shall cry, unclean, unclean. So it, the, the, there's, there's the person, he, he's not saying leper, leper. He's saying unclean, unclean. It was a terrible existence to be a leper, to be unclean like that. That's what Naaman was considered unclean. So he goes to the River Jordan, and Naaman dips himself seven times in the, in, the, in the river, and he comes out clean. So from the history of Naaman, the River Jordan was known as a place where the unclean went in order to become clean. And that meant that when John the Baptist was baptizing in the River Jordan, that that was a statement to the people that they were unclean, and that they, were, they, they went there for cleansing, just like Naaman the leper. So this is the first message that the River Jordan had for the people of Israel when they went there. It was a place for unclean people to become clean. But the second significance of the River Jordan was way back in, as they entered into the land in Joshua 4.1, Joshua 4.1, where it says, It came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, and, and so forth. So this was the entrance into the land of Canaan. This was their, they had come out of Egypt. 
They had this interim time. Okay, it was 40 years. But they had this interim time when they wandered around for 40 years in the desert. And then finally when they come in, this marks the end of Egypt, the end of the wandering, and the beginning of their new life there. So whenever the people heard about the River Jordan, it was not just a place for the unclean to be cleansed, but it was also the thought of a new life, of a new life that came in. Just like, for example, a new life with God. So these are the two messages the people understood about the River Jordan. So and you can imagine that if you, if you were one of the people there and you were coming out there, that you would be thinking to yourself, just as Naaman dipped himself in the River Jordan and was cleansed from his leprosy, so now I am dipped into the same River Jordan to be cleansed from my sin. It was a point of cleansing. And you can imagine if you were one of the people there, you would say, just as Israel, under Joshua, went into and through the River Jordan, leaving their old life of Egypt and the wanderings behind and coming into a new life in the promised land of Canaan, so I am now going into the River Jordan to leave my old sinful life without God and come into a new life with God. So these are the two associations that the people had with the River Jordan, cleansing and new beginning. But um, there's no cleansing from sin, and there's really no beginning with God unless a person is acutely aware of the fact that he is a dirty, rotten sinner. That's the prerequisite, and he needs cleansing from his sins. There's no beginning with God unless a person is acutely aware that he's a dirty, rotten sinner. No cleansing, no beginning with God happens unless a person is aware of that. That's why it's so important in verse 6 when it says that they were, when they were baptized, that they were confessing their sins. Can you imagine that? As they were going down there, they they, said, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. As they're going into the water, they're confessing it. It's not like, you know, say, I'm a liar. You know, no, they're just saying it out. They're saying it. They're so filled with the, with, with the sense of shame and guilt and sorrow that they're just speaking out. Now, so here are the people. They're coming to be baptized into the River Jordan, and they're confessing. They're saying all these specific things, that, that, that shameful things, horrible things, but that, that's, they're being honest. That's, one, that's the people. And then and John is they're beginning baptizing them there. And then all of a sudden, John sees another group of people coming in verse 7. And when he saw, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his, genera- to, his, to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath of, uh, to come? So you look at this in verse 7, and it describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're coming, and you consider them. And then you look at the other group in verse 6. What is there that's stated? What is there that's stated about the people in verse 6 that's not stated about the Pharisees and Sadducees? They're not confessing their sins. They're not confessing their sins. So the people are walking in and they're like saying all these horrible things that they did. They're confessing their sins. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not confessing their sins. They're just coming to be baptized. They're in line too. And this very much disturbs John. John is very acutely aware of sin. He's, a, he's just that type of person. He calls a spade a spade. He says sin is sin, even when it means he's going to get his head chopped off because it did with Herod. He, that's the way John is. So what is this? Why is this group? Why is this group? Okay, 
this group here, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, first of all, uh, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees were there? Well, okay, first of all, the Pharisees, they taught the people to justify themselves. They taught the people that you are special because of your descendancy from Abraham. You are special because you're Jewish. And so what you need to do is to embrace your Jewishness. That's how you get accepted with God. I mean, as I told you, this, uh, I was at this funeral last week uh, from my friend Dorothy, and, and the rabbi, as I was listening to him, this is what he was teaching. He was teaching the people, oh, you need to embrace your Jewish heritage, and this will make you distinctly different and separate from the Gentiles. And if you embrace your Judaism, your Jews, and, and so forth, then you're going to have eternal life, and you're going to live with God forever. And he read from Psalm 23, and I, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what the Pharisees taught the people. Trust in the fact that you're born of the seed of Abraham, because Abraham was, was good with God, and you'll be automatically good with God. So this is the Pharisees. They taught the people to justify themselves because of their descendancy. And John, on the other hand, was teaching the people to accuse themselves. So the Pharisees are teaching justify yourself, and John is teaching accuse yourselves. Because John was really teaching along the same line that Solomon taught the people in 1 Kings 8.38, 1 Kings 8.38, where Solomon said, when it was at the dedication of the temple, it was such an important thing. And Solomon said about, he was praying for the people, and he said, Lord, what prayer and supplication soever is made by man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. So what an interesting description that the Bible gives for the condition of man when he says the plague of his own heart. Uh, this is real heart disease. This is God's heart disease. This is God's description of heart disease of man. The plagued heart. What's a plagued heart? A plagued heart, a heart that's plagued, is a heart that gravitates towards sin. It's attracted by sin. A plagued heart is a heart that, as is described in the hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's the direction of the heart. It's a rebellious heart. It's a heart that, that, that is all we like sheep have gone astray. It means all we like sheep want to go astray. All we like sheep want to sin. All we like sheep are prone to wander away. And this is the issue when, when uh, Solomon says, any man which shall know the plague of his own heart. And the question really is, does a person know that? Or does a person say, no, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person. I, I was. Okay, if a person is aware of that, then the person's going to be acutely aware that he's a dirty, rotten sinner. And he needs a cleansing and he needs a savior. So this is the description of the people in verse 6 as they're confessing their sin. And when this detail is missing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It means that they weren't confessing their sin because they didn't, they didn't see themselves as having a plague of their own heart. They didn't feel any sorrow. They weren't filled with shame. They weren't filled with guilt. They weren't saying terrible things that they've done to themselves and uh, done themselves. And, and so that's what it is. So they wanted, the, the Pharisees wanted, as you said, to bring the people back. They wanted to gain favor with the people. 
and, and we have this, this picture of the Pharisees in Matthew 6, 5. Matthew 6, 5, when it says, when the Lord said, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as hypocrites are, for they, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 